Rebag is a luxury resale marketplace. They have a curated collection of investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry. Each piece is carefully vetted and verified by experts. You can buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Hermes, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 10% off your first purchase with code REBAG10. That's Rebag.com to get 10% off your first purchase with code REBAG10. Betches Media presents... I like beer. I don't know if you do. Okay. Do you like beer, Senator, or not? Uh, my party is going bat crazy. Ah! You're the pop- Alternative facts. Oh, goodness. The Betches Sup Podcast. America! Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Betches Sup Podcast. It's Amanda, and I'm here today with Ashley White. Ashley is a social justice advocate and a bail disruptor with the Bail Project in Baton Rouge. The Bail Project works to prevent mass incarceration and combat racial and economic disparities in the bail system through its National Revolving Bail Fund, which we're going to get into. Uh, Thank you so much, Ashley, for being with us. Hi, thank you all. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, so in the past six weeks, I think, uh, I can imagine they've been so overwhelming for you in, in a lot of ways, but a lot of people have become a lot more aware of the concept of bail funds, um, the concept of cash bail, and the kind of work that you've been doing with the Bail Project for a while. So we're excited to have you here to kind of reflect on what's happening and, and provide some context for, for the topic. So I described you as a bail disruptor, and I feel like maybe people, a lot of people, that's the first time they heard that. So maybe we can start there. What's a bail disruptor? Yeah, so a bail disruptor is, I like to think of it, and I consider myself a freedom fighter. We are a group of individuals that work to throw a wrench in the system and disrupt mass incarceration. And we do that by operating localized bail funds. And, you know, if it's the middle of the night or early in the morning or mass bailouts or, Mm -hmm. you know, people that, that, you know, were sending in calls, we are going to, um, we, we post their bail we advocate for bail reform. We serve as community advocates. Wow. We um, collaborate with other grassroots organizations to promote criminal justice reform. We are counselors to our clients. We are part-time social workers mm-hmm. um, in, in the services that we provide uh, in, in our role. We are advocates for our clients in the legal process um, and any other sort of personal or health issues that they may be having. Mm-hmm. And, and we're people with lived experiences and a passion for um, ending mass incarceration. Yeah, so I mean, it's called a bail disruptor, but it sounds like what you do and the scope of what you do is is so much broader than just interrupting that process. You're actually then following up with it and doing advocacy around why that process even started. So it's so much more than that. Yes, uh, what was interesting about the bail disruptor role is that it's it's evolved. I feel like even in the year that um, since I've joined the bail project. Um, we all kind of start with, okay, we're going to post bail and it's going to be this very systematic process. And in, mm-hmm. the t- in the meantime, we may be able to speak to city council members or, or judges. Um, but the bail disruptors nationwide have taken very active roles in their communities and have pushed um, their stakeholders to be accountable and, 
and that looks different for each city and, and their methods look different for each city, but it, it's a very unique opportunity for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who better to do that advocacy than the people that are actually seeing how these laws play out day to day. Um, so specifically, what does the bail project do? It sounds like you described the process of a, of a bail disruptor, but can you tell us a lot about a bit about the bail disruptor and how it sort of, how might it be different than what people have heard about jail, bail friends so far? Yeah. What, what's kind of the ethos? So the bail project is pretty much the largest national revolving bail fund and we operate in over 20 cities and um, we are a collective, but then we also operate very independently and we're still very community-based. And our mission is, as you said, to combat mass incarceration. And we do that through our emergency response, bail relief and bail funds, but then also pushing for systemic reform on the back end so that cash bail, so that we can end cash bail. And that is sort of the dual role of a bail disruptor and as a client advocate. Um, I'm both addressing the immediacy of someone in jail with the possibility of losing their job or the possibility of getting COVID mm -hmm. or any other risks that they may be facing. But I'm also um, advocating for bail reform. I'm also meeting with judges to discuss the services that we offer so that they feel comfortable with what we're doing and perhaps... Um, are more comfortable with lower bonds. Mm -hmm. um, I'm working with public defenders to get their clients um, a release plan. And so we work together to do that. And so we are pretty much what I consider just fighting it from all sides. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So can you talk, this is such a broad question, but I'd love to hear it from you. Can you talk about some of the ways that cash bail contributes to systemic inequality? So, I like to think of cash bail as the feeder into the mass incarceration pipeline. And um, most of the half million odd people that are in jail at any particular time are there on pretrial um, situations. And so all of that money that's going towards housing these people, towards arresting these people and paying the police officers to do that, um, all of the money that's going towards commercial sureties or people putting up their properties to get their loved ones out um, is a billion dollar industry and it's fueled through those bodies. And so most of those offenses are nonviolent. Most of those offenses are drug related. And so you're dealing with a drug crisis through the carceral system. And so um, it in Baton Rouge here, um, an average person is held 55 days in a pretrial in jail. And so for those 55 days, the sheriff's office, they get their allotment per person and they'll keep them there um, until their trial. So we're talking about just pushing masses amounts of people through a process, a legal process, even though they're technically innocent. Right. Can you, what are some of the things that can happen when somebody is, is forced to sit in jail for prolonged periods of time that might not happen with somebody who had the resources not to? Like, are they more likely to like take deals that would result in, if, I mean, sitting in jail for 50, in jail for 55 days seems like it can, that's enough to have an irrevocable impact on your life. But yeah. there are also probably impacts of like, that just, 
can you talk about that a little bit more? Like the risk, sure. the risk to people's for future that for staying in jail when you yeah. haven't been charged with a crime. So we know most of the sexual assaults and violence within jail happens within the first 48 hours of somebody arriving. We know that most people lose everything that they have within the first 48 hours of them arriving in jail. And so um, that's 48 hours. And then we're talking about 55 days, which is the average wow. here in Baton So um, it, it's the extreme cases in that someone may have a pet at home and who's going to feed the pet for 55 days, or they may have a child in school and who's going to take care of that child, or they may have medical conditions in which yeah. if they're not receiving adequate treatment, they're going to die in jail. And so um, it's a life or death situation for a lot of people. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you are searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone on any occasion. Now it's easier to find gifts made by independent sellers for all of the people in your life, like the pickleballers, I know plenty of those, the jazz fan, the artist, the pasta lover, whatever niche interest they have, you can find an incredible gift on Etsy. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there is something for everyone. There is so much pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas specifically for my dad, but my dad loves flying, he loves airplanes, he loves aviation, and he never gets sick of a cute little gift that has a reference to that. And the inventory for that on Etsy is incredible. I hope my dad lives for 200 years because I can get him a birthday present related to aviation or planes from Etsy for every single one of them, if not hundreds and hundreds of years more. There really is that much. A gifting moment is always around the corner, but whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. What are some of the biggest barriers to ending cash bail? Well, I think that the reform movement has to happen locally. And there have been attempts to sort of address bail at the sort of Supreme Court level and nationally. And unfortunately, it's just not something that we can just legislate away in a, in a Senate. Yeah. Um, it is something that culturally has to shift when you're talking about breaking down systemic barriers and institutional racism. You have to totally reculture people in, in how to operate in a system that doesn't rely on carceral violence. You have to teach people how to um, get the community support that they need so that they don't end up in, in situations where maybe the police have to be called. Or diverting others you know, who may need that emergency help to non-police entities. Um, so we're talking about re- revamping how these institutional systems work. And I think a lot of people, when you think about safety, the only way that they're able to conflate safety is with police or 
jails and that's what keeps us safe. And that's, that's a, a stigma here in, in Louisiana that we battle with being the mass incarcerator of the world. So um, there's that and then there's reallocating the resources. And this doesn't work if we don't support the people that need the support who end up in a never ending cycle of arrests and jails and convictions and police violence. Um, without reallocating resources towards social services, towards community support, towards economic development, towards education. So it's a lot to break down. Yeah, yeah, but it sounds like, you know, you can't talk about ending cash bail without talking about this, what happens before somebody ends up in that position. And that has everything to do with police reform and giving, making there be other options than law enforcement has to detain that person when that is not necessary all of the time. For sure. Yeah. So how did you originally get involved in this work? You said that you've started, you've been involved for about a year. Yeah. So I'm from Baton Rouge. I grew up here. I, uh, my mother is a judge. So I grew up around the courts and the criminal justice system. And I was very much inspired by her people approach and her uh, commitment to community through, through the, her service on the bench and so I studied finance, I went to college, I did the whole Wall Street consulting thing in wow. corporate America, and I was great and got paid a lot of money and was doing everything that everybody else told me to do to be successful, but I wasn't happy. Yeah. And I had the experience in, in college and went to a, a Howard University in an institution that sort of prepared me to deal with the, you know, prepared me to deal with what I was about to come into and, and to be able to identify these systems of oppression, mm -hmm. articulate them and dismantle them. Um, you know, I, I felt like I was selling myself short. Mm -hmm. So I quit my job and I wanted to do wow. data science. I figured I could find a way to bring my analytical skills from corporate America to use data for good and find an organization in which I supported their values. Um, ended up leading me to Data for Black Lives, and I went to that conference and had an amazing experience and was connected to the Bell Project. And at that time, the Bell Project was looking to start an office in Baton Rouge, and just serendipity happened, and I was in the right place at the right time, and, and that was me following my passions and uh, was able to come back to Baton Rouge and, and serve my community. Yeah, yeah. As you were making that career transition, were you, did you want to return back to your community or was that something that became an option and it was a good I knew fit that at the time? was, a, yeah, a unique role for me here in Baton Rouge. Being, um, it is a moderate-sized city, but it still has a very small feel and there's still as the capital city, there's a lot that happens here and that dictates the rest of the way that the state goes. Um, mm -hmm. I knew that I was in a unique position. I knew my community and my community knew me. I knew that I could leverage my privilege in a lot of ways to open doors and speak for people that don't have an opportunity to speak. And I needed to step up and, and use that opportunity. Yeah, I can I can imagine that those community ties probably came into play during the height of the protests, um, being a bail disruptor yeah. in a place where you're from. Can you talk about what that experience was like? Yeah, so this, you know, revolution is happening on a lot of different fronts. 
if it's, you know, civil unrest and protesting and or, you know, through other methods of reform. Um, and so here in Baton Rouge, I'd say that it's been it hasn't been quite as dramatic as perhaps we've seen in other cities. Um, one, because we just went through this with Alton Sterling and um, we saw the full front and full force of the sheriff and the PD yeah. um, for protesters then. And um, we saw the justice system fail to, to you know, work. So um, I think the city is, is drained. I think the city is tired and beaten. Yeah. And, but we do have a lot of young folks here that are, um, that are stirring the pot, that are yeah. energizing the community, that are um, not afraid of that confrontation and to stand up for what they believe in. And so I stay very closely connected with them um, in, in the case that they are arrested, um, mm -hmm. that we can be there as soon as possible. Uh, and that works for us. That's our, you know, our methodology. In another cool. city, um, they've had bail disruptors, you know, stake out with tents and tables and, you know, ready to get people out the front line. Yeah. So um, we, we've addressed it uh, however that city sort of needs to. Hey there, overwhelmed foodies. Are you drowning in a sea of meal kit options, feeling like you're in a bad dating game where every contestant looks the same with the same fish picture? Fear not, because amidst the chaos, there's one shining star worth your culinary affection. Home Chef is not just another fish in the meal kit sea. They're the gourmet catch that you've been dreaming of. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes, conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. Whether you prefer classic meal kits with pre-portioned ingredients and easy instructions, speedy recipes ready in less than 30 minutes, oven-ready kits with pre-chopped ingredients, or quick microwave meals that assemble in minutes, Home Chef has you and the entire family covered for delicious meals without the hassle. Home Chef has over 30 options a week, and they serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it is economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. So for a limited time, Home Chef is offering our listeners 18 free meals plus free shipping on your first box and free dessert for life at homechef.com slash feverdream. That's homechef.com slash feverdream for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. Homechef.com slash feverdream. You must be an active subscriber to receive free dessert. A question I think a lot of people have is how, how does the bail project decide who to bail out? How does that process go? What are the steps? Yeah, a lot of reasons why we hire locally and we hire from bail disruptors from these cities is because they need to know what they're dealing with. Yeah. Um, and so our decisions for bailouts are very individualized. We have referral systems that we rely on, especially through the public defender's office. Um, and we look at the needs of that particular client um, and our ability to help them address those needs. And we treat each one as an individual. And we have to make a decision. We don't bail out everybody. We can't bail out everybody. But our goal is to help as many people as possible. And we do have, you know, these financial considerations as well to keep the bail fund revolving. Um, and so, and just personal caseload. You know, I, I manage yeah. over 100 clients at this particular time. So, um, wow, it, it's, it's very much individualized. Yeah. I'm curious if you, you see any sort of patterns in your work day to day that you, you think are kind of under 
appreciated or under discussed in the broader conversation about criminal justice that you are just so obvious to you and you see all the time that you wish more people knew about? I think it's just how little it takes to divert somebody on the right path. Um, a lot of what systemic racism and institutional barriers are based off of cycles and getting yeah. people trapped in a cycle. And that's sort of mode of oppression, but it, it takes a slight diversion for someone to break that cycle. I think sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it takes years of concentrated effort. And when we talk about overcoming a lot of those systemic barriers, it does take generations. But, um, on the individual level, I've just been so pleasantly surprised that it takes a phone call sometimes or just calling somebody a ride or walking to the walking with them to the courthouse to pay their fine because they feel really intimidated and they wouldn't have gone otherwise or to talk to the judge to say, I can't pay my fine and this is why. So just that little bit of help and support for a lot of people breaks the cycle. And so now they don't have that bench warrant because we sent them that text message. Now they can make their court date because we called them a lift. And so I think there's a conception that this just takes loads and loads of effort and people are lost causes based on a lot of mm. barriers that they have. But the diversion point and the intervention point can sometimes be very small. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And while we have you, you mentioned that you have a background in data science. Um, and there's this sort of, I haven't heard as much about this recently as I had before the sort of protest started, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about data science as it relates to like the social implications of machine learning and artificial intelligence, which is, I think, your, your beat. Um, have you yeah. seen an impact of these technologies on your work in, as a criminal justice advocate? Oh, for sure. I, I think what happens is, like with any piece of technology, other system players start seeing value in it. And just the, the concept of algorithmic learning and machine learning and database decision making is not new, but its implications in other social realms is now becoming more, um, it's increasing more. So, I mean, what what we always sort of focused on, especially as an organization, is that these risk assessment tools are perpetuating the same stereotypes and the same inequalities based on the data that is being input into them. And the basis of algorithmic learning is to detect patterns. And so if you're detecting a pattern based on historical behavior that already is deeply embedded with all of these systemic barriers and institutional racism, then yes, all of your future predictions are going to say the same. And so it gives a false sense of accuracy. It gives a false sense of confidence. And they're judges that are supposed to make these decisions based on individualized cases. When you divert that decision and you give a judge a tool and it says A, B, C, or 90% or red, blue, green, or whatever, yeah. all of a sudden you sort of lifted a big sense of responsibility that that judge has in making yeah. a, a bail decision and a risk determination. So I think in this, when you're talking about lives at stake and just acknowledging how inherently flawed the source is, and yeah. you talk about trying to make predictions off of that source, it just, you're just going to have 
the a repeated cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And finally, how can people get more involved if they want to disrupt cash bail and and help the work that you're doing with the bail project? What what can they do? Where can they learn more? What should they? How can they help? Sure. So I think everybody needs to start local. The bail fund and the bail project that we run is great. Um, if you have one in your local city, definitely look out for us. If you, if you'd love to make a donation, we'd love that. But then. You don't have to do that. There's other ways in which you can write to your congressman or your city council about municipal bail reform. Or have you had, in Baton Rouge, our judges are elected officials. When is the last time that you've talked to your judge in your district about the decisions that they, he or she has been making? Um, or your um, prosecutor and district attorneys, they are public officials. Um, there are, your sheriff is a public official. And so all of these people that are decision makers are beholden to you as a taxpayer. And so I think that it's important to not only address this in the streets with the protests and make people uncomfortable and make sure that, um, you know, we are not diverting the attention away from where it needs to be. But then also, if we're talking about systems, you either have to address the current system that exists or build your own. And so if, if you're somewhere in, in those spheres working on creating new institutions of equitable justice or addressing um, existing ones through whoever you have access to and whatever local groups you have access to, they're there, seek them out, support them with your time and your money. Yeah, awesome, that's great advice. Thank you so much, Ashley, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks y'all. Until the return of democracy, I'm Amanda Dubrin. This is the Betches Sub Podcast. The Betches Sub Podcast is produced by Sean Kilby and Amanda Duberman. Our podcast managers are Mike Coscarelli and Sean Kilby. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Artwork by Brittany Levine. Be sure to follow us at Betches underscore Sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send your emails to sup at Betches.com. Betches.